Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we have just heard from the President of the United States. He is pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. This is something that was entirely keeping with what he campaigned on. A promise made, a promise kept. And the line that jumped out on me that I am sure we will hear many times is that he cares more about what is right for the people of Pittsburgh than the people of Paris. Boom, John. That That is almost everything you need to know about Trumpism and President Trump's mentality. There's so much in that sentence that I think you can unpack to, to understand the mentality of his supporters, the people that will be cheering this on and expected this and voted for this among the bundle of other things they got. Also, I would argue in the problems in, in arguing against it. The Democrats put themselves in the position of saying, no, we, we would like Paris instead of Pittsburgh. Of course, that papers over the fact that we're talking about the world. It's the globe yeah. that we're, we're talking about. And Paris and Pittsburgh are actually neighbors in, in this particular issue. But as a slogan, uh, along with Make America Great Again, along with America First, you see the appeal. And you saw President Trump. This didn't sound to me like a guy that was really having any second thoughts. This was a pretty strong and forceful argument for pulling out of this accord, John. Okay, but a couple of things. First of all, he did say that he was open to negotiations to, uh, to to make the Paris Agreement better and therefore stay in. Remember, we don't automatically withdraw until 2020. Uh, and he said he'd either be willing to negotiate to make this agreement better on better terms for the United States or to do another agreement. But what you didn't hear in any of that is any sense of urgency about the need to combat climate change. We still don't know in fact, whether or not this president believes that human activity contributes to climate change. Uh, we asked Sean Spicer that quite directly uh, the last time we saw him on camera. I mean, and, and he said that he hadn't asked the president that question. It's kind of a baseline question. Do you believe basically the globe is imperiled by human activity causing uh, global warming or do you believe that this is all a hoax, like the president once said it was? But he didn't say that today, and I think a lot of people listening were, were on that. And In fact, it, it seemed like he went off script a few times, uh, John, to, to, to say that the United States is a leader in clean energy and touting economic growth tied to clean energy. That was not, uh, the, not the, the, the talk of someone who believes it all to be a hoax. I, I've been struck by, uh, by some of the reaction immediately from a range of Democrats who say that they're still optimistic, and President Obama and Vice President Gore among those saying that there's already so much going at the state and local level and at the industry level uh, that, that the president can't unwind. But this is a major marking point. This, to me, is, is, is one of the larger developments uh, that defines what President Trump's vision for the presidency is, what America's role in the world is. And I don't think there's turning back from this. I feel like this has ramifications, uh, of course, uh, uh, throughout diplomacy, throughout the moral authority of the, of the nation, and, and quite literally ramifications for the planet. You know, one person uh, who I was watching uh, react to this was Elon Musk. Elon Musk, who had uh, been an informal advisor on one of the president's economic advisory teams, uh, and had been somebody that the president had had talked about favorably, he cited Tesla uh, as as a you know it's a classic made in America company, uh, you know making the most high tech cars in the world right here in in the United States, 
And Elon Musk's response to this, in which he had telegraphed beforehand, and he had tried to get the president to change his mind beforehand, uh, is that he is now uh, dropping off of that economic advisory council and, uh, you know, is basically saying the president made a big mistake uh, for the United States and a big mistake for the world. I'm struck by the fact that this didn't happen until June 1st. And you look at the, the, the prominent voices that lined up, Elon Musk, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Gary Cohn, the Pope himself, to say nothing of the G7 leaders, all making these, this argument. Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson, his own Secretary of State. of State, trying to make this argument that this, is, that this should be reconsidered, that it's worth staying in. They've done, they did it privately and publicly. They lobbied the president. And yet for all that, he, on this issue, because he doesn't have done on everything, he, on this issue, he is delivering on the campaign promise and not showing any kind of, on the one side, on, on one hand, on the other hand, type of, uh, type of understanding. Now, maybe you read something into how long he went and how many arguments he employed, but this is a president that seemed pretty committed to what he just said, despite all of that, and knowing what the blowback, knowing what the reaction would be, knowing, in some sense, what the ramifications are. And in just a moment, we're going to be speaking uh, to Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Senator Lee, one of the those interesting Republicans, as conservative as they get, a true constitutionalist, and a never-Trumper uh, as long as he could be. Um, I don't know if he ever actually you know, employed that label, but he was the one leading the fight against Donald Trump on the floor of the Republican convention in Cleveland. Long after he had locked up enough delegates to clinch the nomination, he was still trying to find a way to defeat him on the floor. And yet, he embraced Trump during the general election and has been a strong supporter of his, uh, you know, on, on, on many issues. Not, not, I mean, he's been critical as well, but he's been, I would argue, as strong a supporter as he's had in the Senate. And we're going to be talking to him in a few minutes. But, you know, on this, Rick, on this agreement, what I had been hearing from White House aides before the decision was finally announced is that the president had one thing and one thing only in mind in making this decision, and that is what is the impact on American jobs. So all of those other arguments, whether it be the survival of the planet, <laughs> whether it be our relations with our allies, um, whether it be uh, you know the, 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 the effect this would have the, on American leadership around the globe, all the other arguments you have heard, those were all secondary or, or lower. The only thing that mattered to him was what is the impact on American jobs. That's a pretty hard, I mean, I, I would like to have been on the wall in the room as uh, Ivanka Trump, his own daughter, uh, Gary Cohn, uh, his own top economic advisor. I would love to have been uh, you know, fly on the wall to hearing how you make make an argument against Trump on on that when he seemed he seemed it seemed that the, the terms of the debate really preordained the decision. But that said, the 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 fact that you had companies like Apple, Microsoft, even Exxon Mobil come out and say no, stay in this. The, the economic opportunities and the lost ground economically doesn't even make that a clean-cut argument. Again, though, he no, didn't true, betray true, that. True, I think he, 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 still, he, he still seemed clear-eyed in his decision, but I'm curious what the White House views as all of these CEOs and prominent business leaders getting wrong, Gary Cohn included. What were they getting wrong about the economics of this that President Trump believes he's getting right? 
See, Trump sees it as existing American jobs. <laughs> you know, right. he's he's going to fight for those guys in hard hats, uh, working in the coal mines a, a, as long as possible. He almost, and and you know, his his, his commitment to this in many ways is, is entirely consistent um, with with what he was saying on the campaign trail. But you wonder where would he have been, you know, at the kind of dawn of the industrial revolution. Uh, you know, uh, would, would, would he have been? Where would he have been with all you know the the, the, the folks that were threatened with job loss? Uh, maybe maybe the guys that made um, you know the the, the carriages. Yeah, save the or, horses. Uh, <laughs> save the horses. What, what 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 about the guys that made a lot of money selling hay? You know, and I mean, come on, where, where was he? I mean, where would he have been? Yeah, that's right. Uh, buggy whips, buggy whips. I mean, mm. those buggy whip guys got destroyed by uh, by Henry Ford. Yeah, and I I just I think this is the, a defining moment for for President Trump. It's a, it's an enormous blow to the Obama legacy in in politics as well as policy. Uh, it sets the United States in a much different direction. Uh, and I'm also struck by the way this was celebrated by the White House, John. This was a Rose Garden event. This is a, a the the whole all the trappings, the cabinet there, and the the supporters there, and the vice president making the introduction, and the president. On a, on a beautiful uh, early early summer warm day at the White House, basking in this as a as a major cause for celebration, when of course it's being viewed as uh, as a planetary tragedy by so many. Uh, it, it is striking. I think that in some ways, though, Rick, frankly, the most surprising part of this you alluded to was was the fact that it took till June first. The yeah. um, the fact not only on the timing, but the fact that there was debate inside the White House. Serious debate. Maybe not much of a debate inside the president's mind. <laughs> uh, I think his mind was, 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 was pretty well set on this uh, all along, but that he did hit the pause button and listened to arguments by some of his absolutely most important advisors. You know, even, even Mattis uh, at the Pentagon has talked about the, uh, you know, the defense implications of climate change. Uh, so you've got his secretary of state, his top economic advisor, his daughter, uh, Jared Kushner, with a portfolio that includes basically what everything in the world, and it didn't matter. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't matter. And I think actually the key to that is 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 in people like our guest, Senator Mike Lee. We'll talk to you in a moment because this is about those who brought him here and uh, the, the, the 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 Trump voters and uh, the Republican base. Uh, very skeptical about climate change, very skeptical about the urgency, and very skeptical about international agreements. This hit a sweet spot. And Pittsburgh versus Paris, that is a that is a compelling argument. All right, joining us now is Senator Mike Lee of Utah, author of the new book, Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Fought Big Government. Uh, and we want to uh, talk to you about your book in just a moment, including how you're going to rescue the reputation of Aaron Burr. I mean, interesting. So, yeah, I look forward um, to doing that. Uh, hey. No, <laughs> no lost causes for Mike Lee. I like it. Um, so, uh, Senator Lee, I, I, I want to first uh, I get to you um, on kind of a, a check-in on the state of the of the Trump presidency. I remember vividly being with you on the floor of the Republican convention. You were one of the very last fighting to prevent Donald Trump from becoming the Republican nominee. Uh, when others who had opposed him strongly had given up the fight, you were still fighting to find another path out of Cleveland. Given what you have seen so far with how Trump has 
performed as president in terms of what he's pursued, temperament, all of the questions. Do you have any regrets about what you did at Cleveland or have you seen reasons to confirm the actions that you tried to uh, or the actions that you took in Cleveland? Look, I had some concerns, which I made fairly well known as to his electability. Uh, Those concerns turned out to be unfounded. I turned out to be wrong in that regard. I will say I was very pleased the day President Trump was sworn into office when he said, I see this not just as a transfer of power from one administration to another, one president to another, one political party to another, but from Washington, D.C. back to the American people. I still see that as the, the central vision of his presidency, what I hope will be the central focus of his presidency. And I think we have every opportunity to achieve that. He does need our help in Congress. And to do that, we need, another, among other things, to pass Obamacare uh, repeal, uh, to pass tax reform. Uh, that's incumbent upon us to do that. But the messages I'm hearing from him are still consistent with that theme of returning power back to where it belongs, to the people. And, and w- what about the constant distractions? Uh, I mean, I, I hear frustration from your colleagues uh, on an almost daily basis that there is an agenda to pursue. Republicans in Congress have an agenda p- to pursue. Uh, but, you know, whether it's Donald Trump's Twitter feed or, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the various battles he picks, uh, it, it's impossible to... to to get any momentum. And every time there does appear to be some momentum, he, go, he goes off in another direction. Sure. And I understand what people are saying when they say that. But make no mistake, if you're hearing that from Republican members of Congress, if you have Republican members of co- Congress claiming that it's the president's fault somehow that we're not passing Obamacare repeal, that we're not passing tax reform yet, I think They need to look at the mirror before they cast aspersions at him and say that this is his fault. Because the fact is that distractions aside, there's no reason why any of those things prevent us from doing what we need to be doing. There's no reason why we need to be in recess this week. There's no reason why we ought to be recessing weekend after weekend and then sometimes for a week at a time or even more. We need to be about finishing the work that President Trump wants to achieve and that the American people elected a Republican Congress to enact. So, so to be clear, you think that there's more blame right now on Congress in terms of failure to enact the agenda than the distractions from, from even moving on an agenda? Yes. Not only do I believe that, I, I absolutely know that. I can say that with great certainty. It is our job. We are the legislative branch. Insofar as what we're concerned about is a lack of legislative action. That is Congress's job. That's what we need to do. Now, I I don't mean to say that it's easy. I don't mean to say that this has been a a result of total inattention on the part of congressional Republicans. Uh, We are trying, but I just think we need to be working harder. And most importantly, we need to not be blaming this on people other than Congress. Senator, I want to get your take on one other news item. James Comey, we're learning, is uh, set to testify as soon as next week. Uh, the, the, The signals that we're getting out of people close to him is that he prepared to tell quite a story about uh, about his communications with President Trump. I, I saw you quoted in, in an interview just this morning um, saying that you'd find it curious if, if he had a different story to tell given the question he was under. Do you feel like Comey or Comey Associates are, are misleading the public at this stage about the nature of the contacts, about whether there was any pressure exerted on him to drop any FBI probes? I don't know. But what I do know is that as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I was there when he testified in front of our committee. And among the questions he was asked was a question along the lines of, you know, did you ever see political pressure brought to bear 
on the outcome of a particular investigation, political meddling uh, with how an investigation was going to be conducted. And he said, no, that is not something I saw, not something I observed. So, yeah, some of the uh, some of the leaks or the anonymous sources who are speaking to the media on this are saying that he's going to contradict that. I have yet to see that. It would surprise me a little bit if they did, because he was pretty direct, quite certain, quite definitive in the way he testified to us. So, yeah, if he contradicts that, I'm going to have a whole lot of other questions for him. Given what Comey has has said through the, these memos that the president uh, asked for his loyalty, uh, that the president asked him to um, to give uh, Michael Flynn uh, a break. Do, do those, if those things are true, do those get to obstruction of justice? Do those trouble you, or 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 not? Oh, well, first of all, those would seem to be rather glaringly inconsistent with what he told the Senate Judiciary Committee a few weeks ago. I haven't seen those memos. I do look forward to hearing what Jim Comey has to say about it. Uh, and it would require a whole lot of other questions. I, I, I would need to know a whole lot more than just a, a specific word that he uttered. If he uttered the word loyalty, who knows what that could mean. In context, that could perhaps mean, you know, don't deliberately undercut me, don't engage in backbiting within my administration and talk smack about me. Uh, if, if that's all it meant, that's something very different uh, than trying to influence through political channels the outcome of a pending investigation. So that's why I, I've got to know a whole lot more what than about, what's just being rumored right now, especially when those things are flatly inconsistent with what Director Comey has told the Judiciary Committee. What, what if he asked, uh, if he said, I hope you can uh, essentially go easy on Michael Flynn? Well, uh, there again, I, I would have a whole lot of follow-up questions there. How do you possibly reconcile that with what you told us a few weeks ago? So, Senator, I want to talk about the book and, and two characters in particular, the names that, 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 that you get at. And to be clear, this is about uh, people, mem- members of the founding generation that, in your view, have been mistreated by history in some way. But John mentioned Aaron Burr at the top, and I think in popular imagination, he's known as the guy who killed Hamilton. Um, Elbridge Gerry is another name, and I think to the extent that Americans know Elbridge Gerry or even pronounce his name right or wrongly, it's because of gerrymandering. Well, what's, what is the case for this reexamination, and what's the importance of that reexamination in the context of what we deal with today? When the hit Broadway musical Hamilton uh, hit Broadway a couple of years ago, it became an almost instant success. And its popularity, I think, traces back to the fact that we as Americans have uh, an interesting connection with our founding generation. We understand that that generation knew something about human nature, knew something about who we are as a people, and that those things in many cases remain relevant today. But a lot of our founding generation has been forgotten. Many of our founding fathers, our, our founding fathers and mothers have been neglected, uh, uh, or as I put it, written out of history. Aaron Burr is one whose name is known to many people, but he's misunderstood, at least the fact that people know that he's the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton, or the damn fool who shot him, as, as the play puts it, uh, is in, it's incomplete. Uh, he was the vice president under Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson undertook this massive campaign of impeaching public officials, and people, including people in the judiciary who didn't like, who he didn't trust. Aaron Burr, as vice president presiding over their trials, treated them with fairness, and he upheld due process and the rule of law in the process. In the process of doing that, though, he made something of an enemy out of Thomas Jefferson, who during his second term, when, uh, uh, when Aaron Burr was no longer his vice president, uh, Jefferson decided to prosecute Aaron Burr 
for treason, a capital offense at the time. He did so on a very thin evidentiary foundation, and but for language in the Constitution protecting those accused of treason, Aaron Burr might well have lost his life because of Thomas Jefferson's greed and political jealousy. Now, this is a reminder to us that even a revered early president like Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, needs to be viewed with a suspicious eye because people can abuse power, and Thomas Jefferson quite certainly did. So if you were to to pick a a figure from American history that should be the next Hamilton, should get the next Hamilton treatment, you know, big... um, musical on Broadway, a, a, uh, I mean, you know, rescued from, you know, relative obscurity. I mean, people know who Hamilton is, but didn't, you know, in the popular mind, probably didn't know much about Hamilton. Um, and certainly wasn't revered in the way a Jefferson or a Washington. He's not on Mount Rushmore. Um, who, who would you, who would be your candidate to get the, uh, to get the Hamilton treatment next? Canasetego. Canasetego is a name that most Americans don't know. He's been forgotten. He's been written out of history. Uh, He he was an Iroquois Indian chief who taught Benjamin Franklin about the principle we now call federalism, about the fact that the nations of the Iroquois Confederacy came together and they said, let's protect each other. Let's join together for limited purposes, allow each tribe to govern itself locally, but we will stand together as one united nation when it comes to external affairs or affairs that concern us all collectively. Uh, this information transmitted by Canasetego to Ben Franklin was then transmitted from Ben Franklin to other founding fathers. It ended up forming the backbone of one of the, 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 the core structural protections of the Constitution, federalism, later embodied in the Tenth Amendment. Uh, but Canasetego gets too little credit for this. He's an American hero. He's a forgotten founder. So we're, we're four months into this, this presidency in this, in this much different uh, environment, much different world. You've acknowledged being wrong in your judgments early on. But what's the historical, what's the story that you feel like isn't being told or that will be told by future generations about this early part of the presidency? Put your historian's hat on for a moment and take that step back. What, what, what's the thing that future generations will focus on that maybe isn't getting a lot of notice now about this first 130 days or so of the Trump presidency? Here's how I see it. I think this will be regarded as a time when Americans of different political stripes at a very politically contentious time, there's a lot of stark contrast between Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, but where some of those people will start to come together. I mean, look, uh, Donald Trump was uh, was elected, voted into office by uh, uh, people who wanted power to be transferred away from Washington back to the people. Uh, Those who didn't vote for him, those who voted for Hillary Clinton, didn't want that change. But just the same, they are becoming increasingly skeptical of government. That can create an interesting opportunity to return power to the people. The thing about federalism and separation of powers is that they allow more people to get more of the kind of government they want and less people to fewer people to get uh, uh, the kind of government they don't want. Uh, These really are principles that are neither Republican nor Democratic. They're neither liberal nor conservative. They're simply American principles. They're constitutional principles. They're principles that have themselves been written out of history. That's what I try to do with my book is to try to reconnect people with these politically neutral uh, but uh, longstanding constitutional dimensions, uh, recognizing that we can all benefit when we protect liberty and when we keep government power properly channeled. So I, I want to go back to one of the kind of 
central compromises that it's of course a big part of the uh, of the musical Hamilton big part of the the, the lore of, uh, of of the early days of the of the Republic and that is the um, you know the, the the compromise about uh, the federal government assuming state debts and moving the capital to uh, the, the banks of the Potomac so uh, you know Jefferson and Madison get what they want there Alexander Hamilton gets what he wants in terms of a stronger federal government taking on the state debts of which New York had much more than Virginia. What what would what would Senator Mike Lee have uh, have said about that compromise uh, uh, back then? It's very difficult to put oneself in it in a very different uh, uh, condition. But I have a hard time looking at that and saying that, that I would be uh, steadfastly against it. I, I don't think there was anything arbitrary or unreasonable. I don't think there was anything dangerous or unconstitutional about that decision. I think it made a certain amount of sense, especially because it allowed us to move forward and establish what became the greatest civilization the world has ever known. But the genius of the system that they established and that helped us build that and that led to that compromise and countless others is the, the fact that the Constitution's purpose, its chief purpose, its ultimate purpose, is to limit government to say there are certain things government cannot do, and there are certain ways government has to act when it chooses to act. That's what we've lost sight of, and that's what I hope to restore with this book. So one thing I've heard a couple of times in conversations recently, Senator, Supreme Court Justice Mike Lee. Is it a possibility? Oh, yeah. Is it something that that's you right. would consider, uh, even consider, if there is a, if there is a vacancy and, and President Trump wants to consider you? Oh, of course it's something I consider. I mean, look, I, I'm a lifelong law geek. I started attending Supreme Court arguments when I was 10 years old just for fun. Uh, so I, uh, it would be absurd for me to suggest that I wouldn't consider that. If, if the president of the United States asked me to consider it, I surely would. Uh, that ultimately is going to be up to the president of the United States and not to me. Well, uh, do you think it's going to happen? I don't know, but I do look really good in black. So. <laughs> This is that's the most honest like answer I've ever heard. That's yes, pretty good. Yes, it's it's really good. I mean, I think that's it has good. to be taken into account, right? <laughs> Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Senator Mike Lee, we thank you for uh, taking time to talk about your new book once again. Uh, written out of history, the forgotten founders who fought big government uh, by Senator Mike Lee. Thank you for joining us in Powerhouse Politics. And we'll uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. We'll do. Thank you both. So, uh, uh, Rick, uh, that, that, that was one of the most refreshingly uh, uh, candid answers we've heard in a while on the Powerhouse Politics uh, podcast. I, I look, look good in black. I, I mean, there, <laughs> there you go. I, you, you, I mean, you put your finger on it from Senator Lee's perspective, and you were alongside him there on the, on the floor of the, um, of the convention. I, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Republican who has uh, turned more fully behind President Trump. And we've covered a lot about Republicans who've gotten concerned about his leadership. It's not just that he's pulling for the guy and recognizes that he was wrong about his appeal. It sounds like Mike Lee is accepting him as a as a conservative, someone that's committed to smaller government, and going beyond that and saying it's really Congress's fault that his agenda is not moving. That's striking. He's he's there in the Senate. And you've talked to senators. I've talked to senators and congressmen and Republicans who are privately very frustrated by the fact that President Trump's taking them off track. He's saying, look in the mirror. Come back to what we have to do in the Senate and in the House and, and actually get things done. That is, uh, that's an answer I'm sure President Trump would agree with, but it, it's actually become more rare in Republican circles. And, of course, he's right. I mean, it's not like the president is, like, you know, somehow not able to get to the desk to sign bills. <laughs> you know, I mean, the bills haven't reached the desk yet. The, the, the problem 
though, is that's not the full picture. Obviously, you expect presidential leadership uh, in terms of getting a Congress, particularly a Congress of the president's own party, uh, to act. And he's not been able to pull that off. That's right. Um, uh, but but he's right. And, you know, there, there, there's there's a plenty of dysfunction uh, in that Republican Congress. There's plenty of dysfunction that was there, as, as we well know, uh, before Donald Trump uh, won the Republican nomination, before he was elected president, before he was inaugurated. This is this is not all Trump's fault. It, it, no, no. And just like Aaron Burr wasn't all a bad guy. I mean, you, you reassess these things al- along the way. I, I am struck. Hey, can you we make... talk about that for a minute? Please, he was basically please. Accusing, he was basically accusing Thomas Jefferson of trying to murder Aaron Burr. Is that right? For, that, for that's right. Reasons? That's uh, that's right. Uh, and and these are these are charges that came up after. Uh, you know, he never actually stood trial for uh, for the murder of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, this was this was on treason charges that came uh, later. Right. So uh, it was it was unrelated, but but it suggests uh, you know the power struggle that went on in the early days of the republic. I mean, those guys played for keeps, right? I mean, this is the, 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 the lock her up, forget that. How about kill them? <laughs> it's another level. <laughs> they, treason, 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 and duels. I mean, that's they, there's there's a violent streak there in American history. Um, but I look, I think I, I think he's right, and 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 I, I liked your question about rescuing someone from obscurity because we've had a tendency over time to do that, and we learn more about ourselves as a country when we do it. When you go back and and find a more obscure founder and and bring them back, but I, I don't know that we're going to have Burr the musical anytime soon. Uh, he's been almost universally cast as a villain, and it, and it's hard to to bring that back. If he succeeds in that, uh, you know, hey, maybe maybe he does belong in the Supreme Court. So, so who is uh, Rick Klein's uh, candidate for the next Hamilton treatment? Who, who, who do you want to see the next musical about? So, I think of John Adams. I mean, is he overdone? Did McCullough already do that for him? Is he already out of the out of the the musty history books? I mean, I think McCullough actually kind of gave Adams the Hamilton treatment uh, before we had the Hamilton treatment. So, uh, but it's a good choice. He was kind of um, let me underappreciated you, founder. But let me give you another one. How about John Jay? Uh, okay. we remember him oh. we remember him in part for the oh, rivalries Jay Street in Washington man. yeah with the rivalries that that, that that got his that got his letter overlooked <laughs> in the grid of Washington it's, it's confused many a, a, a GPS system or <laughs> a Washington traveler but in terms of his impact on the Federalist Papers uh, the, the 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 Treaty of Paris I, I think on the international stage to understand what John Jay meant I think is I think there's a reexamination there Interesting. Uh, he only wrote three of those Federalist Papers, right? I think they were big ones, though. We'll have to go back and look. Okay, okay. There, I, there were back. only a couple right. authors, so right. to three, three is not a bad... I mean, I'm just saying. It's not, it's not bad to be part of it yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's true. Yeah, that, yeah that, that, that was a pretty good group of folks. Uh, all right. That is all we have uh, for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. But, Rick, I do hold out the possibility of an emergency podcast before the week is up. Boom. Boom, as always. I mean, what, 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 what could surprise us this week? All right, we'll see you again soon.